Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Hi, Laura. I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight? Well, I'm trying to get over UK's big loss in the SEC championship game today. I think the show could push me over the edge and I can get happy and forget about it, though. You blew my line. I was going to ask if you watched any basketball today. (laughs) (laughs) We brave UK basketball at our house. I know. It was very sad, but they might have really kind of needed the loss to kind of kick it into a new gear, which other teams seem to do at their conference championship, like L. Did you watch that basketball game yesterday? Yeah. And it came through pretty good. I was saying to Bill a little bit ago that, uh, you know, I'm a Hoosier fan, and he's the Michigan fan, and they both – played horribly and lost earlier in the tournament, and I said to him today, well, it's not too bad. At least Ohio State and Kentucky lost. Oh, <laughs> we like, I can't believe you said that. Oh, oh I on. cheer for your team. Oh, <laughs> I know, but Kentucky is just so confident. That's the problem with Kentucky. They're very well. good. And I would look for them to make a big comeback in the in the big dance, but I think so too. And this probably is a little. One of my friends wrote on Facebook that was a big old dose of humble pie. So maybe so. So in that whole self analysis process that you and I seem to talk about a lot, yeah. perhaps those players should have some of that. So we'll see how it all turns out. Yeah, it's a pretty grueling schedule. Three three big games in three days. I mean that's you know. And when when everybody everybody's game with Kentucky is their final four game since they're right. number one, everybody kicks it up a level. And Kentucky's got to figure out a way to kick it up a level beyond that. So anyway, all right, that's enough basketball talk. <laughs> we are Let's in keep Kentucky. this show now we rolling. We got to talk basketball just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, bet, I wonder how many people fast forward through the first few minutes of yeah, our. Yeah, really. Are they talking about basketball? <laughs> Probably not too many of our listeners are huge fans. I don't know if they live in Kentucky. They are. We do have some other uh, our friends that are local therapists. Quite a few listen from what they tell me. So that'll that'll right. really scare you today, won't it? Yeah. No, I'm okay with it. You're okay with the local gals, huh? All right, let's not say any more about that either. Um, Today's show, before we get going on this, let's talk about what's on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, if folks haven't had a chance to check that out. Therapy Tip of the Week is up. I have started officially putting that up on Friday evenings. And, again, got some great feedback on that. I love it when I get emails about it right after I put it up within the first hour or so. And this week, it's the theme is introducing or talking about clothing items and how to maybe expand play with baby dolls through introducing this new little direction for that. And so some good ideas to use for clothing items. And again, this this isn't going to be for kids who are your first establishing relation, your relationship with it with or kids who don't understand a lot of different words yet. These are kids that are really moving right along with you in therapy and hopefully will give 
some therapists and some moms some new ideas with ways to expand vocabulary. There's some great ideas for higher level processing in that video. Your cute washing machine toy that I've just about talked to, to death <laughs> Uh, is in the video, and you finally got that this week since I went ahead and just mailed it to you since I can't seem to find my way to your house to drop it off. So a lot more to mail it than you did to buy it. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Johnny and I were laughing about that. (laughs) Sad. Well, oh, well. But the way with gas is, it's probably about the same as the gas would have been. Yeah, because you never come to the big city, do you? (laughs) I'm a country girl now. I live yeah, in the I suburbs. Know. You and Macy make it to the mall now and again. I know that. We haven't been, though, really. Oh, that one day. Yeah, we were supposed to drop that off. Yeah, but with the five dresses, you got carried <laughs> yeah. away with your shopping and never made it to my house. Oh, well. Anyway, it's a great gift, and I love the uh, therapy tip of the week. I think those are really cool, and I think that they've gotten better and better and better. If you, as you, not that they weren't good from the get-go. but Oh, you know what I'll really focus on out of that line that you just said, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you can say I'm, 25 more nice things to me, and I'm going to say, oh, my gosh, Kate said they got better. Does that mean the first ones weren't good? Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, maybe no, I should redo this. No, maybe I should pull this down. It. <laughs> it just seems like you seem more comfortable with it. I don't know, but yeah, that's probably well, just knowing you well. It, I know. I think so, too. Uh, you do. You probably can look at it and pick apart what's going on just internally because you know how my internal dialogue right. and my rants about myself seem to go. <laughs> but I think any – The bad side. <laughs> But anytime I start a new project, I'm pretty nervous about it because I care about this and I love doing it and I want it to be successful and I want it to be helpful and I don't want it to be I want it to be approachable and not too academic, but I want it to be beyond talk to your kid, play with your kid. You know, so it has more structure and more direction. So it does kind of sometimes take a little while with any new project, to feel like you've hit your stride or feel like you're accomplishing what you set out to accomplish. So, anyway, thank you for saying that you like it because I really like it. And I have gotten a lot of good feedback from therapists um, and moms. Quite a few moms have emailed me about it, which is always nice, too, because, you know, every time I do a project, I'll think, okay, this, this is really directed for parents or this is really directed for professionals and really I think both groups benefit from everything and so it's it's kind of a surprise when I get more feedback about it from the other group whoever that happens to be that I didn't originally think would be the intended audience so but I'm glad it has that it has helped people and seems to reach both audiences there well I think they're very cool a lot of work but very cool well, it's been fun today. We'll see how long it lasts. All right. Oh, something tells me it's going to last a long time. <laughs> I've got a big toy room with lots of ideas. Really? And, and a husband and, and who motivates it, you. Come I know, and invariably, every time I finish one, I'll think, you know, I'll let this out, I'll let that out, I'll let that out. So I think it. I think it'll run for a while. All right, moving right along. This weekend, I um, opened a Twitter account for TeachMeToTalk.com, which a lot of people have asked me before if I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter personally, but I don't ever tweet on there. Do you do Twitter, Kate? Have you done that? 
I have to have an account only because Laura opened one for me. Yeah. No, I don't really do it. Well, I do it just to read other people. And I follow, you know, like some celebrities and some news people and, you know, kind of get a kick out of some of that. So, But I haven't really used it professionally. But because so many people have asked me about it, I opened an account for teachmetotalk.com. But I don't really I – I want that to be purely professional, and I want to follow other people and other um, – websites or other resources or other therapists or therapy practices that post things. So I want our listeners to tell me who to follow, to suggest some ideas for me. Um, so you can email me with that at laura at teachmetotalk.com or you can put it on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page so that I will get that there. So that's a plea. The other request is on Pinterest. I went ahead and did, Johnny's laughing now. This is social media day on the podcast. On Pinterest, my therapy recommendations page on my personal Laura Mize page was getting so out of hand that I shifted all that and did a whole separate Pinterest account for teachmetotalk.com and reorganized those boards because it was making me a little bit crazy that I had so many pins. And if you're not a Pinterest person, this makes no sense to you whatsoever as you're listening to this. But it wasn't organized. And again, I can't really stand that. So (laughs) I did spent Friday night reorganizing all that. So that'll be a great resource for um, therapists and for moms too. So if you do Pinterest, and the account, I got an email about this today, too, my friend that I've made um, on the website and then got to meet her a couple years ago, Gloria, who's a speech pathologist in Chicago, said, I can't find either of those accounts. She was just searching Teach Me to Talk, and it really is teachmetotalk.com because my oh. marketing person, who happens to be Johnny, that's kind of said with my you know, little smirk there, a long time ago, really said you have to put .com on the end of everything because that really establishes the website. So search it with .com on the end, and you'll find that if someone else has tried to find it and couldn't find it. All right, the other thing I wanted to mention about the Facebook page is this week I had such a good discussion with lots of moms and therapists from all over the country one night this week, I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday, because I posted a little response that to an, a comment on the website where a mom, it wasn't a mom, it was like an aunt, who said, I had this nephew who only has two words at 24 months and he's turning two and his parents are not concerned. What do you say to those kinds of parents? And I said, I just tell them the facts that 90% of all children who are turning to have more use more than 50 words routinely. And if you your child has turned to and he does not have 50 words, he is in the bottom 10th percentile with expressive language development. And lots of times parents don't get that information presented like that. They hear things like, boys talk later, don't worry, he was fine. My neighbor didn't talk to he was five and he's a doctor. You know, all the... Stupid stuff that people say to parents of late talkers. But when you use our milestone information like that, that 90% of all children turning to have 50 words, that that's how it got to be established as a milestone, is that 90% of all kids have to do it before by that age before it's listed on a test. 
But some people really think about that 50-word thing as average at the second birthday rather than, nope, that's when 90% of kids have done it. So if you have a child that hasn't done that or when you're looking at little kids on your caseload, guess what? They don't have 50 words. You knock them right down to that bottom 10th percentile. And a lot of parents, (laughs) some parents commented on there, and I've got a flood of emails from parents who said, oh, my gosh, that was such a slap in the face to me, or that was a big reality check for me to hear that my kid is in the bottom 10th percent mm-hmm. for other kids his age. And this would be people that, you know, whose kids were two and a half, and I want to say, you don't even want to know what that number is. <laughs> because it's really, kids have hundreds of words by that time. An average two-year-old has two to 300 words when he or she is turning two. And that includes both boys and girls, not just, you know, somehow people think, too, that boys don't really talk. Yes, they do. They're included in that whole standardization process, so they're included in that 90%. And so it was a lot of good discussion. Then we kind of got off on a rant. A therapist said that she had a mom who wanted her son to kept claiming that her son must be on the spectrum and then other therapist and when he's clearly not another therapist jumped in and said I've seen that too and then other moms got a little bit defensive and saying gosh why would a mom want that you must be misreading the situation no parent would ever be like that so there, there was some interesting discussion on there so I wanted to point that out and talk about that a little bit and it, that was kind of fun uh, you know, other than when I think, oh, no, there's going to be a fight on my Facebook page, you know, between a therapist and a, a parent, who none of whom know each other. You know, they live in other parts of the country. But at the same Which time, it's good, good information. Yeah. yeah, it was a good discussion. So wanted to point that out. And any time that you see a post on there like that and you want to jump into the discussion, don't hold back. Just jump in. That's tons of fun for people to learn and get other people's perspectives. And so I wanted to point that out. Well, I missed it. You know, I think um, as far as that boys talk late thing, it seems like I have, and this is just my own personal perspective, I'm not saying this is a universal truth, but a lot of times parents quote pediatricians on that. Oh, totally. pediatrician said that he's a boy and I shouldn't be worried because he's a boy and boys talk late. So, I don't know. Well, I know why they're saying it, but. Science doesn't really back that up. The research process, I mean, boys, I guess, talk later than girls when you look at it that way. What I I mean by, and before people start sending me nasty grams, what I mean is when we have done, or when not we, as in me, but when researchers have measured typical development in order to get a milestone like 50 words by 24 months, the children that they test for that, before it's listed as the milestone, 90% of kids have to fall under that. So the skill is not listed even when an average kid has 50 words. That's way back at 18 months. But when we're looking at milestone acquisition and milestone measurement, the people that have set those milestones don't say don't put it at an age level until 90% of kids at that age level have achieved that skill. And I don't understand why so many pediatricians don't really recognize that or don't really, you know, I think if they said to them, don't worry, he's in the bottom 10th percentile right. with expressive, 
Don't worry about him. 90% of kids his age are doing better, but he's going to be only fine. only behind 90% of all other kids. Yeah. yeah. And we had 100 well, and kids. And that is kind of surprising to me that, that, and I know I've heard you say it before, Laura, but yeah. that the milestone is really set that low. It is. I mean, you would though. think this is average. This is when most no. kids are 50% of kids, no. not 90% and, of kids. And when I realized that, do you remember when I realized that and started? I, I don't know if we had such a big discussion about it then. But when I started, when I was doing all the research before I started my conference series, is when I really, I mean, you know that in your mind, but when you, the day you really realize it and you start thinking, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, it just really, like a lot of parents said, it is a huge gut check for them because nobody right. had ever presented the information like that. And so that means even if we have to educate pediatricians and we have to educate parents and the general public and every family that we see when they ask about it, instead of blowing it off and, oh, he's going to be fine, we really need to state the fact. And the fact is, <laughs> if they don't have that many words, they're in the bottom 10%. Who wants to hear that about their kid? And right. it does issue a bigger call to action than just saying, oh, he's a little behind, or, oh, it's probably going to be fine. And really, with early intervention, those kids are fine. I mean, not all of them, but some of them will be fine. Right. But parents have to know that so they can make good decisions and get on it. I think that would change a lot of people's minds, and a lot of parents who don't seem to be concerned would act differently if they had better information. So I wanted to put that out there. I thought it was a great discussion. And it's well, a great way it also to word takes it. into account those kids, Laura, who, you know, you see in the church nursery, I see in the daycare yeah. where I'm going to see Johnny and whatever, Lisa comes up to me and says, hi, are you here to see Johnny today? Oh, he's right over there. And they, yeah. too, are 24 months. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, totally. That's, that's why that's yeah. pretty low when you really think about it. Yeah, yeah, the kids who run up to me at church and say, Miss Laura, look, my new shoes. And I'm going, yeah. oh, my gosh. My <laughs> mommy bought them for me at Target. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> They're like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Have you watched that movie? And you're like, oh, oh, oh my gosh. You're a genius. Yeah. Yes, listen to that. She can carry on a whole conversation at 24 months. Yeah. Which is, is above the norm, but you that know, they is are above the norm. Out there. Right. And truth be told, Average 18-month-olds have 50 words, and that's the that's the number I learned when I went to school and when lots of speech pathologists went to school, and then the whole birth to three explosion happened, and then we got better measures, and then the whole standardization process bumped that milestone to 24 months, and the reason that it is, if therapists have ever thought about that before or wondered about it before, it's because 18 months is average. That's when... Average kids have 50 words, and it's when, mm-hmm. but 90% of them, even the kids on the left side of the bell curve, have gotten 50 words by that time. So I, I just think it's important information, and that's how we have to share it in, other put words, it in that context. Use it as a standard when you're flagging a kid for being in that bottom 10%. That's pretty far yeah. below average. <laughs> and the scary thing is we don't even see all the kids in the bottom 10% for early intervention. It's really when you start looking at 
standard deviations below the mean. Most programs are only seeing kids like in that bottom fourth percentile down. Now, that's scary, isn't it, that you can't qualify a kid that's in the 7th percentile, 8th percentile, 10th percentile. That's scary. And so if you haven't ever looked at the numbers like that, if you're looking at standard scores with a test that uses standard scores rather than a criterion um, assessment, that's what breaks your heart is when you can't qualify a kid like that. And you can't sit there and say to a mom, he's going to be fine when a kid is functioning at the 6th or 7th or, you know, 10th percentile, and you can't qualify him for, ther for therapy. I mean, and oftentimes we can't do anything about that. I mean, the eligibility requirements are set. We don't, we don't, we can't, we all, we don't always have professional leeway, but you need to do a good job of saying to a mom, he can't get services from me, but he needs to be seen by somebody. And, again, a lot of therapists are real shy about that because they think that, you know, they're not supposed to do that or their program's going to get mad or whatever. But I think it's our ethical responsibility to give parents accurate information. And so looking at your test scores, kind of reframing how you think about it, that your eligibility is probably so much lower than you've ever even thought of before. And it just kind of puts a new spin on things. So there, I didn't really mean for us to talk about this as long, but so be it. It's, it's important information. All right, moving right along. Tonight we are doing part two of this, this topic that we started last week, which is building verbal imitation in toddlers. And I did have some moms email me, and I got one an email about this today who said, uh, I, I, my daughter wasn't in the first two levels that you talked about last week, and I really want the rest of that information, so point me in the right direction for articles on your website about this. I don't have a lot of articles on the website about this whole hierarchy and process because they're in publications. <laughs> the, there's a really simplified form of it in Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual in the Expressive Language chapter. And then we've also done a show about it already. It's show number 112. So if you're an eager beaver like that mom who emailed me today and you say, Laura, you and Kate are taking forever to get to where my kid really is and the ideas I really need, go back and listen to show 112 because it's a really abbreviated version of the hierarchy that we're talking about. But I took this hierarchy and bumped it up, ratcheted it up a notch, and really made it more focused and more sequential and more detailed. And it's going to be in um, a new book that's coming out later this month, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. And so I will have a little bit of that information on the website, but not the whole thing. <laughs> so look for that um, to be available, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we're going to talk about the rest of this tonight. And again, the book really is so detailed in how to elicit the skills and materials to use and activities to use, and it's all broken down in a in a chapter-by-chapter -chapter format so that you can really understand where your kid is and not just have one or two little ideas like we're talking about here on the show for each different level, but a whole slew of ideas uh, for you to try at home or in sessions with toddlers. So I wanted to mention that. And last week we talked about level one, which is having children learn how to imitate actions because if a child doesn't understand the whole... Um, 
purpose or purpose isn't the right word, the whole process of imitating, you can't really start with words. You have to start way back at something that's developmentally much easier, and that would be actions with objects. And if you didn't listen to last week's show, you might want to turn off this week's show, back up and listen to show number 147, and then move forward, because we talked a lot about eliciting actions in play and in daily routines last week. And then we moved on and talked about level two, which is um, eliciting imitation with communicative gestures. And that would include, did we talk? Did we start talking about signs last week? Did we talk about that a little bit? Not much. I don't I really don't remember. remember. I don't know that <laughs> don't we really either. did much, Laura. On level two? Right. I don't think so. Okay, well, that's where we'll pick up this week then. I thought we were a little bit ahead of that, but I did not go back and listen to that show because that's sometimes painful to listen to yourself like that. (laughs) And I do plenty of editing anyway, and I did not go back and really listen and kind of figure out where we were. But I know we started talking about gestures, or did we only get through level one? I think we barely touched on, on level two, barely. Okay. Very superficially, because as always, our thinking that we get through all of it did not yeah. pan out, and we got through level one. Yeah, and here we are at 625, deciding really kind of <laughs> to the meat of the show. Okay, so level two is teaching a child how to imitate a gesture. And, you know, gestures are so – I do remember that we talked about this, how important gestures are with – coming before words as a prerequisite for really communicating and a prerequisite for a child really becoming verbal. I do know that we got that far because I remember that same sentence coming out of both my mouth and your mouth. So we got there. And so how do we work on and how do we teach imitating communicative gestures? You're bumping it up just beyond the level of imitating actions with objects, and now you're just teaching children how to imitate body movements that you're doing. And then over time, you shape those gestures to become communicative. And by that, I mean that those gestures convey meaning and that the child understands that. Last week, we spent lots of time talking about cognitive development and social development and how all of these things really have to come together in motor development so that those things have to come a child has to achieve a certain uh, level, developmental level before he's really ready to talk. And this is one of the rungs on that ladder. And we even had a big personal conversation about this this week, Kate, when we were talking about whatever day that was that we had that long telephone conversation and we were talking about um, we how it's... away Walmart Kroger Day, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> My little shopping trip day. How so many times, especially people in other disciplines, and you were sharing your observations about a child on your caseload and how cognitively he's a child who's really involved medically, has a seizure disorder, and you were saying that other team members did not understand where his where he was functioning cognitively. And one of those team members had really talked about adding a speech pathologist to the team because he had no words. And you were really frustrated by that because of the lack of developmental knowledge that this kid is nowhere near developmentally ready to talk. 
And so we were having that conversation about kids really have to be across the board around the 12-month developmental level before you could even think that words would be meaningful. And you were saying for that little boy that he's not there yet, right? Right, not anywhere close, really. And I think that sometimes even well-intentioned therapists think, well, he's two and he did just turn two. And um, they think, well, gee, maybe he should be talking soon or somebody should flip that switch, maybe a speech therapist. And, um, yeah, I was And you had a little personal problem with that (laughs) because you're working on all of those prerequisites with all of your might to get him to the point that he will be ready to do that. But because of this little guy's where he's starting from, that's not realistic right now. Not anywhere close. And he is a kid. I mean, he may never. I'm not saying I can predict the future, but he may never be verbal. Um, you know. And you're words. saying that because of why? Share that so if a parent's hearing this and this is the first time they've ever thought about that or even a therapist, why you would say that? Um, well, I base it on where he is pretty much developmentally across the board. Right. As most kids do, and this is what we see time and time again with kids who have developmental delays, the first to come along generally is gross motor, and his gross motor is his strength. However, it too is very delayed. He just started walking, I mean, not strike that, he just started crawling at Christmas time. Right. So that would have made him, you know, 20 months or 19 months when he started crawling. Right. Um, he, he is not yet walking. He is taking a few steps if you'll hold his hands. It's crazy. I, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't even know that he really cruises along for anything, okay. but he will kind okay. of take a couple steps. So a full steps. max assist, okay. Right, right. So he's um, got no, some muscle tone issues, too. Absolutely. He's very low right. tone, it would appear to me. Um, so so that's his gross motor stuff. As far as fine motor skills, he um, hmm, he doesn't do much with his hands at all. He can get his pacifier and get it to his mouth. And right. pretty much that's it. He really doesn't even... Last week I got him to hold the bubble blower for mm, a couple minutes, and that's the first thing I have ever seen him hold at all. So he does not play functionally with toys at all? Not at all. He will get excited with a squishy ball, and he kind of bats at it. Even the batting Uh is is new. And, you know, he's kind of flapping it with with both hands. Uh Even that's new for him to even show that much apparent interest or awareness. To, to bat at something, but no, he has no functional play really here. There's so no he's not playing. clapping. No, no, no. And I have introduced. I mean, I have tried every toy imaginable. Every and really, I do lots of really, really, really basic social stuff with him because mm-hmm. he doesn't really have a big social connection either. And mm-hmm. he has begun to respond a little bit to that. I get some smiles. I get some mm-hmm. giggles. Um, to very when you're working years. hard, you don't just right. get that because you walk in the room. You get it no. when you are really using your strategies and 
in therapy. You would not get that just, again, in a little casual interaction with him. You have to have right. turn it on, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, I have to kick it into high gear, and I get now. Initially, I really didn't get any response at all. And you talk mm-hmm. about hard, you know, when you're... Yeah, <laughs> you're breaking out the sweat. And to be playful and fun and animated and entertaining, and they're like trying to get away from you because they couldn't care less, and that's how he was. Now he kind of responds to it. It's not great, but it's it's noticeable. He is So he's tolerating to, it and he, going beyond that to kind of enjoy right. it now. So it's mm-hmm. come along a little ways. Um, he has tons of feeding issues. I mean, really, he right. only either drinks bottles or uh, has takes totally pureed food. Mm-hmm. If he has any texture in food at all, he gags. Right. He has lots of reflux problems still. Right. That's the low tone stuff. Sure. Himself. Um, so developmentally, he's hmm. really probably maybe six to nine months, right? Right. Not even really that if you look at his fine motor and his cognitive because he can't hold anything to really explore it. Right. So six months might even be a, a, a an overshoot for him, right? Right. He's very, very, very low, yeah. And so when you're looking at that and you're having an OT say, he should be talking about now, we need a speech therapist here, it's very <laughs> distressing <laughs> because she doesn't understand herself mm-hmm. all the prerequisites that have to come into play before a kid talks. And for some of our listeners, that really may, they may, hopefully, hopefully, any speech pathologist or developmental interventionist would have really thought about that before. But sometimes we know things with our heads, but we don't know them with our hearts. (laughs) And they may not, like that whole milestone discussion, you may know that, but have never really thought about it before, that a kid really does have to be developmentally closer to that 12-month level before words or gestures or even pictures become meaningful. And why is that? Because it's just the way it is. (laughs) That's just how development is. You can't take a kid who's cognitively six months old and expect him to talk because normal six-month-old babies aren't talking. They may be vocalizing, hopefully, more than your little guy is, but at the same time, they're not there yet. That's just how their little brains, that's where they are. It's and like so, when you don't teach uh, algebra before you teach addition. You know, I mean, right. it's just, that's the way it is. It's, it's the just, developmental process. Right. And he is very, here was about a month ago I was there, and he, his little cousin was there who was nine months. Cute little girl, and she was playing with us, which was kind of neat because he did seem to have a little bit of, of awareness of her, which was good. That's great. To see that at least socially, not that right. he was, you know, really enthused with her, but he did seem to be aware of her. But boy, did she act like a three or four month old baby is aware right. of other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she was playing right along with us, and it was painfully obvious to me that she was quite a bit ahead of where he was. Right, right. You know, right. I, the toys, she was trying to do what I was showing him or helping him to do. The She just, over and over and over, every area she 
outperformed him. Of course, she's a typically developing nine-month-old little girl. And so, yeah, so your guess about six to eight months is probably generous on some fronts. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a little bit ahead. And as I was saying in Atlanta, I was like, wait a minute, he's not really holding anything yet, and he's not really trying to, we better back it on down. And see, that's the thing, too. That's a dilemma a lot of therapists have, because they don't want to write those kind of scores for kids or share that kind of information because it feels too awful and too pessimistic to really say to a parent he's functioning at the zero to three-month level across the board when he's two. Yeah. But our point about this is the OT on the team doesn't know it. So guess what? Neither do the parents or the caregivers, although you said in this situation you're that little guy's who I think I don't even think it was his mom who and I'm not I don't want to share all this personal information about him. Yeah. But she knows. Right. She does seem to know and she loves him and is you know, she's Gets, I think she, on one level, does realize he's, you know, she has two typically developing older kids herself. So I'm sure she has some awareness that he's right. way behind. Um, and but then this whole get a speech therapist thing came up. I had a very frank discussion with her saying, you know, I understand the OT brought up getting speech and that, you know, he doesn't have words yet. Um, here's my feeling on that. And thanks to you, Laura, I was very able to talk about those prerequisite skills for communication. Right. And, you know, he basically doesn't really have any of them, you know, that I would say are sound. So, and really the, call her mom because she really is the mom, but she said, yeah, I wasn't really worried about that. What you're saying makes total sense to me. Right. He doesn't really seem like he's ready to talk. You know, she wasn't, she's very, I think she loves him very much, but it's not really her baby, and she's a uh, not a young mom. I think she's right. pretty in tune with what what she signed on for, and she loves him, and right. she's going to take good care of him, so she's okay with it. But right. it was, yeah, so there we are. So maybe not quite as gut-wrenching, because she's already faced that possibility. But sometimes therapists shy away from this kind of conversation, because you are talking with a parent who's sometimes realizing for the very first time, and you may even be sometimes assuming, well, surely this mom knows because her child has all these physical problems. Surely she understands that talking is not a realistic goal. Parents do not understand that until you tell them, because they always think that cognitively, that, that it's real separate from the physical issues. And we have to really talk about how they go, those things go hand in hand. Now, that's not to say that every once in a while you're not going to have a child who totally blows that model, who cognitively everything is intact and language-wise they're moving along. But you have good evidence of that, even with those kids who have severe motor impairments, but their cognition is okay because you're going to find things they can do and you're going to see examples that let you know, oh, my gosh, he understood that. Oh, my goodness, she got that. You're going to know it. So you can't always have your rose-colored glasses on thinking that every child with motor issues has normal cognition, too. And sometimes that is just not stated clearly enough to therapists. And and, and therapists, therapists know, may even know that, but they don't share that with parents because they think it's kind of understood. But until you have those 
conversations that tell you that it's understood, where they're saying those things back to you, you really shouldn't take that for granted. And you might, as a speech pathologist or the developmental interventionist, be in the best position, have the best relationship, the best connection, the best developmental inform, you know, knowledge to share with a parent, look, this is not, talking is not realistic yet because of all these other factors. And it's a hard conversation to have, but until parents know that, they're kind of waiting on the first word. And and it's not really fair when that may be months or years away to let a parent think that. Because, one, they don't understand the value of what you're working on. They think you're just wasting time or playing or whatever they want to call it. And, two, I mean, they set themselves up for disappointment after disappointment after disappointment when it's an unrealistic skill or a hurdle for their child to overcome. So you've got to figure out a way to share that information. And it is among the most difficult conversations that you can ever have with a parent. And it's good that you got to have it with that that mom. Well, and that she, would, she was kind of a unique you know, in a unique, right. unique position, and she was very open and realistic. But I have to admit, I've been on teams when I was <clears throat> too timid, too, too, I don't know, lacked the confidence or just yeah. didn't have the heart to right. put it out there. It's hard to be I a dream really, killer. It's yeah, hard it to be is. a dream I mean, killer. You want yeah. to say, well, really, cognitively, and that's the one, Laura, that does seem to be the most taboo as far as really right. talking to parents about right. how is your child functioning. We talk about their skills, gross motor, fine motor, social, emotional, self-help. You know, we don't ever say, well, cognitively, you know, <laughs> and right. I'm I'm guilty of it sometimes. I do. I think I've, I'm better than I used to be, but I still sometimes shy away from it. Right. Um, I think that. Well, so I many times it's. Well, it's just your respect for that mom and dad's position, and you don't want to give them any more heartache or hurt or disappointment than they've already had. Right. But you have to say it. Well, that's one of the things I really like um, about the using your prerequisite skills for communication discussion because really it really does factor in cognitive skills, but you're not necessarily right. saying, well, his cognitive skills are a year behind, so... You know what I mean? You're saying, well, right. let's let's look at his play. Well, let's look at right. his social engagement. Well, let's look right. at all those things. Oh, How well understand. does he understand language yeah. <laughs> and all those things? Is there a cognitive component? Uh, yeah. You betcha. Yeah. But you're not yeah. telling a parent, really, your kid's just not smart enough to talk, or right. cognitively he's not anywhere near talking. And right, it's different. That, it's easier to discuss, and it's also, I think, um, really helps parents and therapists, me included, get a much better roadmap for, well, what does need to happen? What right. are you going to be doing in the short term here if this kid right. isn't ready to talk or even sign? Right. What are we going to do? Right. And a lot of therapists do then immediately jump into AAC, Alternative Augmentative Communication. But my problem with that is that's also misused. If a child isn't even cognitively there and ready to work on some of that stuff, when you present a Big Mac switch or a four-choice talker or whatever the you know current or an iPad or whatever the current 
technology that you're trying to use is. When you present that to a kid who hasn't mastered cause and effect, usually they get stuck on the cause loop, and all they want to do is push, 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 and it's so perseverative it doesn't ever become communicative. And I'm not saying that you can't teach cause and effect with a device like that or with a switch toy. You can, however, you're almost shooting yourself in the foot because you think you're working on communication and you're not. You need to be working back at that cognitive level. And, again, a lot of speech pathologists don't realize that. A lot of times... That's why they call, a PT or an OT would call a speech person onto the team is to get some AAC going, and then you go in to do the eval, and you're like, we're not there yet, people. (laughs) You know, he doesn't understand it. He's not ready for us to put 35 pictures on the fridge and him to show his mom what he wants. Guess what? He's nowhere near pointing. He's nowhere near picture discrimination. He can't even discriminate between two objects. He doesn't understand what these things are. And so there's so many factors that go into making those decisions, too. And that's why I really like using a hierarchy like like you were talking about. And even this building verbal imitation hierarchy, if you cannot get a kid to imitate actions, he's not going to talk. Or if he does, it's echolalic, it's non-meaningful, because you haven't filled in the gaps there. And so I love being able to put it on, like I love your word, roadmap, I'm going to use that for my next project. I love being able to put it in that kind of terms because it really does tell you. If you've got a kid that's skipping ahead and you still haven't filled in those gaps, that's a splinter skill, and you never see good, consistent progress when you have kids that have splinter skills because most of the time therapists and parents go off on the bunny trail and work on the wrong stuff without still filling in that foundation. So I... I like being able to put it in very simple, explainable, common sense terms when it's not so darn academic so that it makes sense to not only the therapist to use it, but the parents who might use it too and they understand what you're doing. And they understand it demystifies the whole process where, you know, they're not going to go in the kitchen and by the time they come back, you're going to have them talking, you know, the whole speech therapy magic wand that we're all supposed to somehow have. We all wish we had in our bag. I yeah. would carry an extra bag for that, but I haven't found one yet. Yeah, you yeah, know, Laura, so I use the hierarchy a lot with kids on the spectrum, and I think it yeah. works really well there, too, not only for these, you know, kids who are very low-functioning, but kids on the spectrum, because those kids can be atypical in that sometimes they talk. Right. Right. And yet they're really not very communicative at all. They right. may have lots of social issues. You know, they may their play may be pretty atypical. Oftentimes, I mean, you can almost predict those things. And I do think right. as parents, that is probably one of the hardest things to explain to parents. Or prior to using the hierarchy, I had a really hard time putting mm-hmm. that into words for myself to say, why is it that he'll say, Buzz Lightyear when he sees Buzz Lightyear on TV, or right. he'll script a you know his favorite cartoon, or he'll sing a song but doesn't seem to care if anybody listens or whatever you know. But he can't follow things. directions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He might be able to it, sing the whole Happy Birthday song, but mm-hmm. not understand any really simple directions. Right. Yeah. And, then and it's it hard. Is... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it, those kids are, you know me, my unprofessional terms, they are funky in that you yeah. would think, well, he is talking, 
And parents right. are always thrilled about that, and I am too. But yet when you really look at, well, how are they really functioning, mm, usually not, not very so well. No. And that's why yeah. if you look at the hierarchy and you say, well, where are we on, on receptive language? Where are we on play skills? Where are we on on the social connection? Where mm, All those things are lagging way behind. Right, and that doesn't make sense to parents until you explain it. And then when you explain it, the very best conversation I ever had with parents, and this is the day, and it's it's so funny when you're explaining it to somebody else and then like a parent, a mom or a dad or a grandmother, somebody says something to you that just, again, kind of smacks you in the face. You're like, well, that's a great way to explain it. And This dad said to me when I was trying to talk about splinter skills one day, he said, so you're telling me that he's he's got some things that are really good, but he's missing a whole lot of stuff that should have come first, and that's not necessarily good, right? I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, that's it. <laughs> that's a great way to explain it. Uh-huh. And he got that then. He got like, okay, he really, you know, mm, it's great that he can count to, you know, 20 in Spanish, but he doesn't understand when I'm giving him a command like, go get your shoes and wait by the door. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, stop throwing the food. You know, any of those real-life kind of things are when he doesn't call, even though you're screaming his name, you know, when he doesn't mm-hmm. come, when you're trying to call him. And so it did, you know, and again, we've kind of gotten off on a tangent here, as we seem to do every week. Um, <laughs> but that it is, it is this the whole building verbal limitation hierarchy really does help you explain it to parents and more than importantly, it gives you a way, it gives you a direction to work on things in therapy. And so you can isolate some of these skills. And it's not so academic, though, that you can't explain it to parents. I mean, there are a lot of therapy programs and a lot of, there are a lot of ways to build verbal imitation in children. I mean, you can look at a lot of kind of boxed programs for ideas for that. But some of the, sometimes the terminology is a stretch for even some therapists to really wrap their heads around. And if a therapist can't understand it, how in the world are you going to explain it to a mom and dad? And even if you're trying to explain to a mom and dad how to do it, if they don't understand it, guess what? They're not going to do it. They have no earthly idea what you're even talking about. So that's why with this and with this book, I really tried to avoid a lot of that professional terminology and jargon and all that blah, 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 so that you understand exactly what you're working on and exactly why you're working on it. And so that it's laid out so that you get, okay, if I can't get this kid to imitate actions, he's not ready to talk. If I can't get him to use some gestures, that means that he's he he can't think abstractly yet. He can't he can't use one one body movement to mean something else. He's not there yet developmentally. So I'm hoping that this again will be a roadmap or a better way for therapists to know what to work on and to know how to explain it to parents. And the other thing that's so helpful with this is this gives you, again, something else to do in therapy when your standard routines don't work. Like when you go in and, you know, a lot of us, I mean, thank goodness we get to treat a lot of kids who just have, who are just kind of moderately delayed. And so we go in and we do our standard kind of play routines, and they work, and we all feel great, and I'm so good at this. But this will give you something to do when 
your standard kind of stuff isn't working. It'll give you a way to think about it and look at it and frame it with, okay, what else can I work on? Where is this kid functioning? What can he do? What can't he do? And let me see if I can make this goal of functional language a little less elusive here because I have I have something to go on and work on and something to give a mom and dad that's that's not, you know, written in French. You know, or something that they don't understand. So hopefully that's what it'll do. All right. Well, back to level two. We're not even going to get past level two tonight, are we? Nope. Um, <laughs> level two, imitating communicative gestures. The first thing that you do with this is you're going to have a kid imitate your simple body actions or movements in play. And this is going to be, again, gross motor stuff. You can use pantomiming actions that accompany toys during play. That would be like pretending you're rocking a baby, like, you know, rocking your arms back and forth. You know what action I'm talking about there, Kate? Oh, I certainly do. Yeah. And kids like that. I mean, if oh, they'll do anything, yeah. they'll usually do that. That's a good one. That's like the first one that I always do. Other mm-hmm. little things like uh, even imitating some of your movements, like stopping after you or pretending to march or dancing, anything where they're imitating a body movement. And, again, there are more examples in the book. We're not going to go through all those, uh, but that's kind of where you start with that. Then you move them on to those kinds of gestures that are more communicative. And you start with things that we see typically developing children do between 9 and 12 months. And isn't that amazing that the whole developmental phase kind of comes back up in? What what are things that we see that are early communicative gestures that kids do? That would be like when mom walks in the room and says to her baby, you want up? And the baby lifts her little hands up like, yeah, get me out of here. But when she's lifted her hand, she that's her gesture to her mom, pick me up. Now, with typically developing children, we don't teach them that. They just learn it because you walk in their rooms in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning or whenever you go in and hold your arms out and say, one up, and they eventually learn to pop those little hands up and those little arms up to to use that gesture and say, yes, I want up, long before they use those words. So that would be one, clapping when other people clap. Um, that's another early gesture that can be communicative. Usually it means, yay, or I did it, or you know, I wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, look at me. So, you know, or happy or something. It's always when when you see a kid start to use it to mean those things, not just rote imitation, but really to kind of use it. And they usually have those twinkly eyes as they're doing it and their little faces light up. You know, that's when you know, oh, my goodness, he used that. He Clapping means something to him. That's how you know that he's moving toward that more – abstract way of thinking and that talking is, you know, closer. That's a closer goal. Other things are going to be waving, blowing a kiss, pointing is something that comes in at this level too. Boy, pointing is so hard to teach for kids who don't instinctively know how to do that. And we've had whole shows devoted to that. We are not going to talk about all those ways that we work on that. But those are some of the things that we would see at this level. And we have to see those things first. You might have a child who 
is using a few words and who's not doing some of these things, and especially children on the spectrum because they are so, um, their social connectedness with people or social referencing is sometimes so impaired that they don't really notice when you're doing gestures. And guess what? If they don't watch an adult do it, then they can't imitate it. <laughs> so, it's important, and sometimes you are going to have some children who are going to be talking before they're really using a lot of this, but when you look back at their whole development, like we were just talking about with those examples, that's that's an area that they that that you need to target and that you need to work on because they're not paying enough attention to people to know that they can really use gestures to fill in the gaps. It's that whole nonverbal communication piece. And gosh, there are some adults on the spectrum who still really don't get that. It seems like for so many kids on the spectrum, the motor imitation, I'm not so many, but you know, you get those kids who do surprise you and become quote unquote verbal, not necessarily highly communicative, but they are right. using words. Right. Um and those kids oftentimes they're not really doing any of those unless they've really, 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 really been taught and pushed. And, right. You know. Yeah, and that's not to say that you. That's not to say that you would never that you would only work on gestures at this level with with those kinds of kids. But it's it's to make you realize, man, that's important, and I got to figure out some ways to work this in to whatever our play routines are going to be and work it in to whatever our therapy activities are going to be. And you can't really make a kid get these kinds of things. <laughs> Boy, don't we try. <laughs> but at the same time, you've got to target it and really pay attention to it and really figure out, again, ways for you to work it in there. Or, he'll, he, you know, there's you're not even trying. So why, you know, it's it's not even going to be on that kid's radar it, or or on his parents' radar if you don't talk about it and introduce it and start to make it a part of what you're doing for a kid. And teaching gestures is really, really hard. We automatically, as speech-language pathologists and other early interventionists, think about sign language. And sign language, again, does fit in this level, and it is really important, and it is great. But if you have a child that you really worked with for months and months and months on signs and he's not getting it, Anytime a therapist tells me that, I automatically say, is he waving? Is he clapping? Is he pointing? Is he using some other communicative gestures? And they say, well, no. And then I want to, you know, hit him upside the head and then say, well, then why are you working on signs? <laughs> He's not ready. Because until those things come in, they they haven't gotten it. They They don't know it. They don't. You know, for that kid, and again, we're talking about children with atypical developments. So you're going to have some splinter skills, and you're going to have some things that are out of whack. But you can't realistically expect a kid to be a champion signer when he's given you no indication that he understands imitating um, gestures or imitating anything, uh, any kind of movement with his body. Did, did that whole little rant make sense? I know it does to you. Do you? Th is there anything else I need to say about that? <laughs> Those are among my, when we go and have a new, get a new referral and we have the initial meeting, we're, we don't have the privilege of evaluating them anymore. Right. And that is something I wish it was like on the top of the primary level evaluator's report. Does he wave? Does he sign? Does, does he yeah. point? Does he wave? Right. Does he clap? Um, yeah. Does he clap? Does he give high five? Does he do any of those? And so often the answer is no. Um, right. And 
you know, that tells me we've got a big problem with gestures. If we're talking about a kid who's 18 months and beyond, oftentimes right. 24 months, doesn't wave. Right. You know, sometimes parents give answers like, every once in a while he'll wave. And I always think, mm, we need a little better than that. You know, we yeah. really need, <laughs> yeah. maybe not 100%, but, you know, 75% of the time I want to see that kid making some effort to wave, to point. Right. To, so, yeah, and that sometimes is, rarely is that spelled out in the primary level assessment. They don't, right. they don't write about it. And that's something I want to know. From the minute I see a kid. Right. And so if a kid's not doing that, guess what? That's your therapy goal. That's where you start working at that level with the kid. And if he's nowhere near that, then that's, again, why this building verbal imitation hierarchy is so – because for kids who aren't doing that, then you need to think – and I don't mean you, Kate. I'm talking to you, meaning listeners – you need to think, okay, if he's not doing that, let's back it up a step. How's he playing? Can he imitate an action with an object? How receptively with language? How's he doing even following really basic directions? And then if a therapist is like, nope, we don't have that, you know, then I want to say to them, like I say all the time in our conversations, ding, 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 we have a winner. There's your therapy goal right there. So, so hopefully. often the kids who are not waving, not pointing, not right. clapping from the get-go, what does their play look like? Not very good. They're right. Generally, you know, they may like the bells and whistle toys. Oh, he really right. likes his VTech toy and he pushes the buttons all day long. But does he understand basic cause and effect toys? Will he engage in that play? A lot of times right. the answer is no. He really has right. to be taught that too. Can he exactly. learn it? Yes. Absolutely, but you got to work on it in the right place. With a kid like that, you have no business introducing signs, pictures, or words yet. I mean, you're still talking to him. You're still targeting receptive language. Anytime you're open your mouth, you're targeting receptive language. But at the same time, you've got to start where your kid can be successful. And this is where, you know, I joke all the time on the show about I've made a whole career about out of being the replacement therapist. This is what would happen a lot with kids is that therapists are working on the wrong stuff. They're working at the wrong level, and maybe that their affect doesn't isn't quite high enough to push a kid over the edge so that motivationally has a reason to learn all these new skills. I meant to talk about that tonight, but we never got to that. There's this really emotional contagion, you know, by me just saying that term. I know, you know, we're all educated people. You can figure out what that means. But it's huge, and that's the reason using high affect with kids really, really works. You want to get them pepped up enough and revved up enough and their systems on alert enough so that they can do these things that are really, really hard for them. And talking, you know, for every kid that we see in early intervention as a speech pathologist or developmental therapist, developmental interventionist, you know, that's that's hard for them. That's the reason we're there. So we have to... Again, introduce strategies and use therapy techniques and meet the kid where he is at the level where he can be most successful. And that's what happens a lot is that therapists are working at the wrong level. And when you work at the right level, even if progress is, you know, even if it takes a long time, it would have taken you a long time anyway. You've got to start back down on those lower developmental levels because then you're going to you know, you're giving a kid half a shot at being successful versus just working on the wrong stuff. I love the analogy that you gave. You don't teach algebra before a kid knows addition 
and that's a lot of times what, what we're doing in therapy sessions with kids. We're targeting the wrong stuff. We've got to work on the prerequisites first. You know, the other thing, Laura, is once you've kind of had the initial discussion, whether however you frame that, and I usually do use the hierarchy because I think it tells parents where they need to be focused and it helps me think about where I need to be focused, but whatever, however you have that discussion, it also gives the parents something that they can do. You know, their strategies are things that the kids have a reasonable shot at, right. at acquiring as opposed to, I want you to do, you know, work on the sign for more 40 times a day, and this kid is nowhere near signing more. You know, I mean, at this time, you really have to fill in those gaps before he's a good candidate for that. And I will give a disclaimer. I am guilty sometimes of using some a couple of signs with kids that I really know in my heart of hearts are not ready to sign, just as we Mm -hmm. use words with them. Right. Um, it's just so automatic for me. I'm going to probably right. use, I'm probably going to use all done, and I'm probably going to use more. And those right. are kind of my standard things. I use. Well, I practically use those at home with my, you know, know. 45-year-old <laughs> husband and children who are 22, 20, and 15. I'm kind of on my dogs, but you know what? They can't see or hear anymore, so they're no longer good candidates. But yeah, I mean, I do use them, but I know really, right. is he going to imitate this? No. I mean, the Probably only way this kid's going to yeah. sign it. Yeah. Now, with the little guy I described, I will occasionally use a sign with him. Right. Frankly, I don't even really do hand over hand with him because I know he is not anywhere near ready to use a sign. He, you know, right. it's he, not there. No. Yeah, nope. it's, he's not ready developmentally. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully tonight we filled in all of the foundational gaps for anyone who would be listening and needing the the information with when is when are words really 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 realistic for kids um and so next week we can hit the ground running with where actually i thought we were going to start tonight which is with level three we're going to move past imitative gestures we're not going to even spend a whole lot more time talking about that because we have done so many shows about teaching signs and um kind of walking people through that process if you're not sure all the tricks and things that you should use to teach signs dig back through the archives and look for a show about that but when we were talking about level two tonight with imitative gestures we're encompassing sign language as kind of the cumulative goal for a a kid who's beginning to use gestures functionally. And if you have a kid who's not signing, back him up a step and look at clapping, waving, pointing, and imitating other big body gestures. And that's where you need to be working with a kid who's not signing those things. If a kid still can't do that, back him back down to last week's show where you're working on that level one, imitating uh, imitating actions with objects and if you have a kid who can't do that last week we talked about that a lot and we talked about that a lot today too what are those cognitive prerequisites he's got to have cause and effect he's got to have object permanence he's got to have simple problem solving and if you don't know how to do that get teach me to talk the therapy manual and read chapter five it's outlined in there and we've had other shows about that as well too it's all a process it's all sequential uh, and when you don't know how, when a kid's not making progress, and you don't know what to work on, you need to really put your thinking cap on and not keep doing the same old stuff, 
It's because the goal is too hard. You've got to readjust your goal and figure out where the kid is developmentally and target what he has a better shot at being able to do. All right. On the, on the other hand, when you go in <laughs> on your first session and you take toys and the kid's doing what you're doing and enjoying it and watching you and responding socially and able to point yeah. to things on command and does all your little gestures with your baby dolls and does all those things, you know what? Hey, you can say, <laughs> you've got a lot to work with here. Bump him up, bump him up. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What comes after that? What's the? What are the next little things you target for a kid who seemingly can do all of that but still is not talking? And, boy, do we have those kids on our caseloads. And a lot of times therapists are saying, gosh, I'm modeling. He's doing some signs, but I can't really get any words. Ah, what do I do? What do I do? That's what next week's show is about. We're going to talk about level three, level four, level five. Hopefully we'll get beyond that next week. We shall see anyway. I have a little girl right now, Laura, who she's been in speech, but then the speech therapist left the system, and I picked her up. And um, that's where she, and I knew from day one, whoo, she's really with it. You know, cute, plays, really social, plays good. She can point. She uses a lot of her own little gestures that are adorable. She's one of those kids who's really expressive with her face and with her little Uh gestures. I always call her Shirley Temple because she has curly (laughs) hair and she's pudgy (laughs) cheeks and she's just darling. But I'm just getting her into the verbal mode now, just in You know what I think. I'm not going to say it, but you know what I think. But she is just starting to be able to imitate the simplest of simple things. Right. And, and you know, whoo-hoo, and that, that took me a while oh, even to get yeah. her there. But it's so good that you knew that she needed those in-between steps. And a lot mm-hmm. of moms and even some therapists are not don't have any idea of what I'm talking about when I'm saying in-between steps. What those in-between steps are or what you need to be working on in therapy, and and this is where the rubber meets the road, and where I can tell right away if the therapist knows what she's doing versus if she's floundering. When the people don't know those little in between steps, and once you learn it, and once you think about it, you kind of have a great big duh moment. Like, well, why haven't I been doing this for the last five years or ten years or however long you've worked? Because it makes so much sense. Again, on that common sense kind of. <sighs> gut reaction level and it also fits in nicely with all that blah blah theory that we learned too so we'll talk about that next week and what those little in-between steps are and when you work a hierarchy like that it's amazing how kids come right along mm-hmm. don't you think well, i'm just starting to have my early verbal successes with her and i'm like yes i got her there took me yeah, a little longer go. than i thought it would but she's finally getting there yeah so well good that's well. awesome well, we good. Maybe you can share some things next, next week. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Okay. All right, that's all for this week. Okay, bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.